God's holy word, Luke 2, 22 to 35. Thank you. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who illuminates these words, enlarges our hearts and our minds to absorb and to think and to feel as we ought. Lord, I ask that you would create what only you can create in each of us, and that is a longing for you, a longing to see you, a longing to know you, a longing for you to reign in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for this time and this space that we've set apart to come into your presence, knowing that you're with us in this sacred space. Lord, would you remove everything that would distract us now and help us to hear and to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to open uh, your Bible, the Blue Pew Bible that's in front of you to Luke 2. And I also want you to take out a red hymnal. And I want you to turn to hymn 196. The hymn is also written in the bulletin under sermon notes page. But I'd encourage you to go ahead and open it up to page 196, hymn 196, which is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. This Advent season, we're looking at hymns that are very familiar, extracting lines from them, looking at passages of Scripture which obviously act as the foundation for these words uh, that people have written that we might sing. And as you're turning there, I want to invite you to begin to think about how much waiting and longing is centered around Christmas. Waiting. Children, look at me. Are you tired of waiting? It's coming close. Every day, a little bit closer. Near my house, 
on Lover's Lane. I wonder how many sermons start that way. Near my house, on, near Lover's Lane, there's a house that has a sign. It's decorated beautifully, but the highlight is the sign that's on the corner. It's on Lover's Lane between Preston and Hillcrest. And the sign is a countdown. It's an electronic countdown that is counting down to the very day of Christmas. Not just by days, but by hours, minutes, and even seconds. And what it's showing us is that Christmas is really coming. Christmas Day will soon be here. Christmas means, though, waiting. It means longing. And nobody waits and longs like children. Do you remember when you were a child and that special gift that you longed to have? You know why you long for it? Because your parents created in you a longing. And this is a good thing. Without parents and grandparents who would give gifts and allow us to look at toys in a catalog or to make a a wish list, children really wouldn't have a longing for this day called December 25th. It would be another day. But it is a great day. It is a great holiday because on this holiday we celebrate the greatest gift of all. And in celebrating this great gift and hoping that our children one day will have a desire for that gift, we actually create in them a longing for gifts. Now, it may sound materialistic, and certainly it can be, but the longing is good. You see, we were created to long. And children long. They long to see what is wrapped under the tree. They long to one day open that package and see what they hoped would be there. As a child... And even sometimes still as an adult, I struggle with waiting, especially for these things that are good. As a child, I was probably never really surprised by what was under the tree for me. Christmas Eve, my family's tradition, there are five kids, my mom and dad, was that Christmas Eve, we would unwrap gifts that had been wrapped. Some had been under the tree for weeks, each of our names written on packages, Those were gifts from mom and dad. And in the morning, there would have been other gifts delivered, mostly unwrapped, but there for all glory to be displayed. But I rarely was surprised. I was never surprised by what was under the tree on Christmas Eve. You know why? Children, what I'm about to tell you, you are not to repeat. You're not to do this. I snooped. You know what snooping is? It's where you go and you look and you try to find out what you're getting for Christmas. And I did it. And you shouldn't. Your parents would tell you you shouldn't. And they might not let you have what you might be snooping for. So don't snoop. Don't do it. I'm thankful that my five kids, to the best of my knowledge, they don't snoop. Yeah, you're laughing like, "Uh uh-huh. I snooped. It was amazing what I could do with an X-Acto knife and my own supply of scotch tape. There wasn't a Christmas Eve where I was surprised. I would see the gift that I'd already looked at as I sliced a little bit of tape and unwrapped the paper. Now, my wife doesn't understand why I would have done that. She says it ruins the surprise. I gotta be honest, it didn't ruin anything. It gave me a growing anticipation, a longing for that which I see will one day be in my hands, and as the countdown goes, I'm gonna be able to play with this. My enthusiasm grew. And as the lights went out on Christmas Eve, I never slept, by the way, not once, not a minute. As soon as the light underneath my door went out, I knew that what had been delivered was delivered. I then went out into the hall, and rarely was I surprised by what I saw. 
waiting. Even at one in the morning, when everybody else is asleep, having to wait to really play, that was torture. But the anticipation, having already seen the gift, and the anticipation of what I'm really going to be able to do once everybody up, actually filled me with joy. Christmas is about waiting. It is about longing. But as we get older, we learn that we have to wait for many things. Not just things that will bring joy, but we also have to wait for things that are hard, that can be sad. We wait on our knees for a rebellious child to return to the faith. We wait for an email to see if we're going to get a second interview. We wait in waiting rooms for our doctor to step out and tell us how the surgery is going. We wait to hear, I love you, or I'm sorry. We wait in bed, hoping to feel better, hoping the sadness will lift. We wait with a pint of Ben and Jerry's and a spoon, hoping it will help mend a broken heart. We wait for a text to say late in the night, I'm home, I'm safe. We wait to see if he's the one. And waiting is hard. And longing is part of waiting. And that's why it's hard. We wait because we live in a broken world. And a broken world brings broken bodies, broken relationships, shattered dreams, confusion. It wasn't the way it was originally. Adam and Eve were in a perfect relationship, one with each other, one with themselves, and one with God. It was perfect. They could not be improved upon. God and the community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this perfect, eternal community, designed this world to bring them glory. This one true God. There was one command given to Adam and Eve that you can't eat from this one specific tree. That's it. Everything else was theirs to enjoy. But they gave in to the temptation and they ate. And when they ate... Brokenness entered the world, sin entered the world. Their relationship with each other was, was destroyed. Their relationship with God was destroyed. Their relationship with self was even destroyed. They were afraid. They went to cover themselves quickly. Soon the consequences of sin would be revealed within the lives of their family as one son would kill the other. It's a broken world. And in this broken world, there's a lot of waiting. And there's a lot of longing. Waiting for God is hard. Waiting for redemption, waiting for his return. That's where we are. And we find great hope because of this passage. 
and a man named Simeon. This is Luke's gospel. Luke was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit revealed to Luke early on that he wanted him to tell the people that would receive and read this letter why he was writing it. And Luke was actually writing it for a person named Theophilus. In Luke chapter 1, it says that Luke, a physician, has sought to interview essentially eyewitnesses so that he could give an orderly account to Theophilus so Theophilus would have a reason for the hope that he had been taught. It's pretty amazing. I love the fact that Luke is a physician. Focused, detailed, meticulous. Isn't it neat how God uses different gifts? One thing I love about Luke is that he actually records this narrative using several elderly people. You know what I like about that? Most of the time, elderly people have learned to wait. They've learned what it means to wait. They long in waiting. And there's four primary people that you see in this. Zechariah, the priest. Elizabeth, well advanced in years is what Luke says. She's barren, but they're going to have a baby. And the baby's going to be named John. And then Mary and Joseph, young, not yet married, a virgin. She's going to bring a child in the world. And this child's name will be Jesus. But along with those four, there is an old man named Simeon. And Simeon has been promised that before he dies, his eyes will see the promised Messiah. Before he dies, he will lay his eyes on the one who is the redeemer of Israel, the redeemer of God's people, the redeemer even of the Gentiles, which is what this passage says. Before Simeon dies, this is what he's going to see. So what can we learn about Simeon? Well, first we know he's old. If you look at Luke 2.25, it says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Simeon, we're told, was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. I want you to pay attention to the word consolation. The word consolation means comfort. It really ultimately means peace. In this time in which the people of Israel had been enslaved and had been in rebellion, he is waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comforter of Israel, and that will be Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus' name, but he's righteous and he's devout. What that means is he goes to the temple daily, and as he goes, he is waiting, but he's not waiting passively. You see, we're not to wait passively. He's waiting actively. He is availing himself of the means of grace, and he's moving forward. Why? Because he has been given a promise. And I've mentioned the promise already. He will see Jesus. There's something else I want you to notice about Simeon. It says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, here's how important the Holy Spirit is. Many times we think the Holy Spirit doesn't come until Pentecost and Acts, which is a book Luke also wrote. But the truth is, the Holy Spirit is from the beginning. He's God. And here in the beginning of his gospel, not when he writes the book of Acts later about the early church, 
Luke says that Simeon had the Holy Spirit up on him. He goes then on to say in verse 26, and it had been the and he, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now look at verse 27. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. You think the Holy Spirit's important to Luke? Simeon is a man who has the Holy Spirit upon him and in him. Simeon is being carried by the Holy Spirit. He's being led by the Holy Spirit into the temple as he actively waits. Now here's what's amazing. That same Holy Spirit, not a different version, that same Holy Spirit, Christian, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, that same Holy Spirit that was moving in and over and through Simeon is in and over and through you right now. The very one, the only one, he's there, here. And Simeon goes... And he actively waits for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit is all over him. God is all over him. And then Mary and Joseph bring the baby, Jesus. And in verse 28, it says, He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said. Now I want you to think about this. Simeon woke up. Just like each day, the Holy Spirit is in him. The Holy Spirit is leading him. The Holy Spirit is with him. And he moves towards the temple. He goes into the temple. And then Mary and Joseph come. And they're bringing Jesus. The promise, capital P, the promise that Simeon had been waiting for, the consolation of Israel, was now within his eyesight. And he is seeing God. As God the Holy Spirit is on him and in him and leading him, Simeon now reaches out his hands and takes hold of God incarnate. So Simeon, full of the Holy Spirit, is now holding Jesus who is God, the one who has existed from all time, the one who is fully God, fully man, the miracle of the incarnation. He's holding God. And then he praises the Father. This community of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is swelling throughout this text as Simeon holds Jesus, the one he'd been waiting for the one he'd be longing for, the one in whom he had been promised. Simeon then speaks. He speaks to God, and then he speaks to the parents. The hymn that connects so deeply to this narrative is the hymn that Jennifer beautifully sang a few minutes ago. Come, thou long expected Jesus. Do you realize the title of that hymn is a prayer? I want to tell you a little bit about the hymn. And then we're going to look at four parts of the hymn. 
The hymn, Come the Long Expected Jesus, was written by Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley, in his lifetime, wrote over 6,500 hymns. Did you listen to that? He wrote over 6,500 hymns. Here's some of them. And can it be? Christ the Lord has risen today. Hark the herald angels sing. Jesus, lover of my soul. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Just some of the hymns that this man wrote. In 1744, his brother John compiled a grouping of 18 carols composed by his brother Charles. The collection was titled, A Collection of Hymns for the Nativity of Our Lord. A Collection of Hymns for the Nativity of Our Lord, in which Come Thou Long Expected Jesus was part of the 18. It was actually one of the earliest hymns that Charles Wesley ever wrote. The tune most closely associated with Come Thou Long Expected Jesus was not written for a hundred years by Roland Pritchard. It's a very familiar tune. In Welsh, the meaning of the word for this tune is cheerful. And it is a cheerful tune. It's the same tune that we use when we sing, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. A theme that is actually picked up inside this hymn, but not written by Charles Wesley. Something you might not know about Come Thou Long Expected Jesus is that Charles Wesley in 1744 only recorded two lines of this hymn. It's the first line, first verse, and the last, fourth. It sandwiches these four stanzas. The second and third stanzas actually were not written for 234 years. They were written by a man named Mark E. Hunt. I know nothing about him. I'm not sure who does. I looked all over. All I could find was there was a connection to InterVarsity, because InterVarsity is the copyright for those two verses. That's all I know. But what compels a man to add to a great classic hymn? You know what it is? Longing, longing, longing for more. You know, I feel that way about some of our hymns. My favorite hymn, and it changes at times, but is, O God Beyond All Praising. It only has two verses. Many times I went to Colin and said, Colin, you need to write a couple more verses. Because I am not done when that second verse ends. He smiled. I think he agreed. But the more I thought about it, it's exactly probably what the hymn writer wants. Let's leave them longing for more. It's so beautiful. It's so rich. It's so true. This is enough. But let's leave them longing for more. 
Many times when somebody seeks to add to something that's been around in the church for a couple hundred years, it's not really very good. But truth be told, what Mark Hunt wrote, which is included in this hymnal as verses 2 and 3, are outstanding. It's where we get some of the best phrases about why Jesus came. Came to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glory knows no end. That's not from Wesley, it's from Hunt. And one of my favorite lines. But this morning, for a few minutes, I just want to focus on what Wesley wrote. It would be very easy to make this a 16-point sermon. Which, if you were here maybe 10 years ago, Pete Dyson preached a 31-point sermon. (laughs) So it would be just about half of that. And he did it in about 30 minutes. All on grace. It was awesome, actually. The reason you could do 16 points is because there are eight sections in each of Wesley's verses. I just want to focus on four. And the four I want to focus on have have to do with a repetition. Something that Wesley did by using one word four times. And the word is born. In the second part of the first verse, Wesley says, Jesus was born to set thy people free. Then at the conclusion of the first verse, as he moves into the second verse, he gives us three more reasons why Christ was born. Here they are. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. So for a few minutes, I want to look at those four phrases. Christmas carols need us to slow down and listen, and here's why. You know almost the first verse to every Christmas carol. We could almost sing them without a hymnal or anything printed. But when you move beyond the first verse, it gets quiet. People are looking around. What are the words? These words are so rich and so beautiful. We need to dive in deeply. So just for a moment with four words, four phrases. Jesus Christ was born to set thy people free. Free from what? Wesley answers that question in the next part. He says, from our fears and sins release us. This morning, because you and I live in a fallen world... We come into this place with one of two positions being the central reality of our life. We know Jesus Christ, and we have already been set free, or we don't know Jesus Christ, and we are still enslaved. Enslaved to what? The Bible tells us that we are enslaved to sin, that we are enslaved to this broken world, The Bible is clear that we're not sick spiritually, but that all mankind, all creatures, all people, children, babies, adults, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, every one of us. And because of that, we are enslaved. We're enslaved to an enemy, and the enemy is sin and Satan. Jesus Christ has been sent to this world to set us free. That's why he was born, to set us free from the bondage of sin and slavery. The consequences of sin 
are that we live in this broken world. That's what I was talking about earlier when I talked about waiting. And the consequences are very real. The consequences are things that we feel and know. But Jesus Christ was born to set us free. The second phrase that Wesley uses is about being born. He says, born thy people to deliver. It's very similar to the first, but I want to unpack it for a minute. Why did he come to deliver us? From what? Well, that's an important question. But when we speak of deliver, we're also, not speak, we're also speaking not just of what we've been delivered from, but what we are delivered to. This is important. Jesus Christ came to deliver us from sin and slavery and the consequences of sin, but he also came to deliver us to something. You know what that is? The Holy Communion of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That relationship that we had, which we were designed to have, which was broken by sin, which put us in captivity, not to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but to the enemy. We have been delivered into a relationship that we already, this side of heaven, begin to experience. It's amazing. That's why he came. He came to deliver us. He came to be the consolation of Israel, the comfort. But that deliverance cost a lot. In order for us to be delivered from sin and be delivered into fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus himself had to be delivered. First, he had to be delivered to this earth. And he came to this earth as a sacrifice, but the sacrifice had to be perfect. So Jesus Christ was born of a virgin so that the line of sin could not be passed down. He was born perfect. As he grew, Jesus was tempted constantly to sin, to not follow the Father. But Jesus Christ never sinned. He never sinned so that he could be the perfect sacrifice delivered on a cross as the perfect wrath of the Father was poured out. Jesus lived the life we could never live. And he died the death that we all deserve to die. Luke is so passionate about this that he shows us how significant the law is in Scripture. Just for a moment, go back to the setting where Simeon is. Simeon is there waiting, just as he has been waiting, longing, anticipating for the consolation of Israel to come. And finally, Mary and Joseph come. But why do they come? They come to be obedient to what the law requires. Go to the top of what we read today, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they, Mary and Joseph, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. So every aspect of Christ's life was perfect. His parents, obedient to the law, bring him to go through these, this law, this rite, this ritual. And then Jesus, as he grows, continues to reveal that he's perfect. And the reason that's important is because if we ever depended upon our own righteousness, there's not one who would be saved. Not one. And you know who got that? 
Wesley. Listen to how he ends this incredible hymn. Last line, the bottom of page 196. By thine all-sufficient merit. That's it. It's the righteous, perfect life of Christ, the life I could never live, that you could never live. It's his all-sufficient merit, not lacking a little. If it lacked a little, he couldn't have been our Redeemer. And so he delivers us. He delivers us from what we could never deliver ourselves. Next line. Born a child and yet a king. One minute. I just want to quote Spurgeon. Regarding this phrase that Jesus was born a child and yet a king, Charles Spurgeon wrote, preached, very few have ever been born king. Men are born princes, but they're seldom born king. The moment he came on earth, he was king. As soon as his eye greeted the sunshine, he was king. We call him Prince of Peace, but he was not born a prince. He was born a king. And this king is unlike any king the world has ever known. He is not a king with earthly power because a king with earthly power has limits. He is not a king with earthly presence because an earthly king can only be in one place at one time. Jesus is fully God. And as he walked upon the earth, his physical body was in one place at one time. But Jesus is God. There are no limits. No limits to his power. No limits to his wisdom. No limits to his love. Every earthly king can learn things. Every earthly king lacks wisdom. Every earthly king sins. Jesus Christ was a child yet born a king, the perfect king, the only king worthy of our praise. Last one, born to reign in us forever. Because Jesus was born a king, he was born to reign. And if you are a Christian, you know something already about the reign that he has in your life. If you are not a Christian, you are yet to understand what that reign means. Do you long to know? Do you long to have this king of kings, this Lord of lords reigning in your life? It's very possible that he's brought you here today that you could sense maybe for the first time that he is the longing, the only longing that will ultimately satisfy your life. Wesley revealed this about Jesus when he said, he's the dear desire of every nation and the joy of every longing heart. Do you long for him? Does he reign in your life? If you do, and you know you're a believer, rejoice that he has made you long for him. If you don't, or you haven't, 
and something's beginning to stir in you now, it's very possible that it's the same Holy Spirit I've been speaking about. And he's revealing to you now that there's only one way you'll be satisfied. And it is in Jesus. Last thing I want to say. Joy to the world is a hymn that we're about to sing. Don't open the hymnal. You know the first line anyway. But joy to the world is not a hymn that is about the first coming of Jesus. Not primarily. It is about his second coming. And Jesus told us, settle down, just listen. Jesus told us that we would be waiting. He also told us that there would be pain as we wait. And he knows he came to earth to taste our sadness. But he also told us that there is a day and an hour, somewhat like a countdown clock, that only the Father knows. And at that day, and at that hour, the Father is going to send Jesus back to this earth. And the whole earth will realize his reign. And every knee will bow and tongue confess, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As you wait in anticipation of the day when that might happen, whether you're in heaven or whether you're still living, does that scare you? Or is it what you're longing for? Jesus Christ was born to save. Have you been saved? If the answer is yes, then you have nothing to fear. If you have not yet been saved, then that return ought to produce in you a holy terror that would lead you to a place of saying, what do I really believe about Jesus? I pray that today everyone leaves knowing where they stand. If you are not sure and you want to be sure, simply pray the title of this hymn, Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus. Pray for Jesus to save you. To make more sense of that, I invite you to come and visit with me or Julian or maybe somebody you came with or somebody that you look at and you just think maybe they know more than you. And if somebody comes to you and asks you to tell them more about Jesus and you really don't know what you're talking about either, would you both come that we may visit? This is why Jesus came. He's the ultimate gift. In his grace, we can see something of him now. 
and then live in intense anticipation of what it will be like to lay our eyes on him as Simeon did. But this time not as a baby, but as a risen Lord with holes right here and right here and in his feet. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. He's coming again. Father in heaven, I pray that the words that you have given me to speak today were your words. I pray that you would move, Holy Spirit, in the lives of every person here, that we might grow in our anticipation of what it means to know you and to long for you. Fill us, Lord, with the Holy Spirit. All of us, we pray. And bring to saving faith at this moment any who long to know you, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.